right. Welcome to First Impressions, the podcast where we talk about our love for Jane Austen and give a big metal finger to all those haters. I am Kristen, and I am joined today by Sarah Rose Kearns, who goes by Rose. She is my Twitter friend that I am talking to right now live for the first time, and I'm super excited about it. Hi, Rose. Hello. It's so great to speak to you face-to-face. I know. Virtual face-to-face, yes. Yeah, with the video on, you know, and it's just, yeah, it's wonderful to see you. I thought I would just give you the opportunity to introduce yourself to our audience. Yeah, um, so... I go by Rose. Uh, I live just outside New York City. I'm a playwright and an actor. I have written a stage adaptation of Persuasion. That was my first play, uh, which is, it was going to be produced last fall, uh, postponed a year due to the pandemic, hopefully on for this fall, depending on how the regulations uh, vaccine rollout goes. And I'm a longtime reader of Jane Austen and pretty engaged with uh, Jasna and online Jane Austen communities and met a lot of really lovely people. Yes, that we were just talking about how wonderful the Jane Austen community is online. And I just feel so thankful to have been connected to you and so many other people who form this really warm, supportive community where we can all share a love of the books and talk over certain elements of it, which are really fascinating. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've really learned from your insights um, as well. We were talking about the other day, letters in Jane Austen mm-hmm. and who they were shared with and why. I mean, that was a fascinating conversation. You know, obviously Twitter has its downsides, but it has its real upsides in our It, it really does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, hearing from so many scholars who are interested in sharing their perspective based on having read deeply in many 18th century texts that I have not yet embarked upon. That was, that was really neat. You know, there's so many, and I guess that's something about Austin's work is that she has this real fan base and, and emotional appeal to the reader. And, and then she's also just very intellectually interesting. And, and so there's a kind of crossover of these sort of two modes in the way people engage with her that I find really interesting. Yeah, I mean, she speaks to you on an emotional level, intellectually, there's history, there's mm-hmm. the romance, mm-hmm. you know, that the comedy, of course, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. the comedy, right? So you, there's always something you can get out of it going back to it, you know, and now and I agree. And in the community, we've got uh, Helena Kelly, who wrote The Secret Radical. Mm-hmm. We've got Devonie Loser, who's written many valuable works on Austin. And they, you know, sometimes pop in to the mm-hmm. and to the conversation. We have Deborah Yaffe, who's a blogger, and um, mm-hmm. Margaret Sullivan. I'm sure there are people I'm leaving out, but like, when you hear about all these like big names, they're, oh, Bianca Hernandez, right? B- yeah. Austin. They're big deal fans, as Maggie were say, would say if she was here. They're, they're, yeah. they're the luminaries. And you can just get on and talk to them. Mm-hmm, and it's just mm-hmm. so cool and have mm-hmm. these relationships. Yeah, we're all nerds together. We're all nerds <laughs> together and it's wonderful. And it's why, if, you know, it's why I had to start the podcast way back when is because I did I wasn't part of a community like this. And it was very, very frustrating because that has to go somewhere. Sometimes you love something so much, it has to go somewhere, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and we can all enjoy it and and together. So I would love to ask you, I was fascinated when I realized that, um, you know, because when we started to interact on Twitter, I believe your Twitter handle just said persuasion. Yes. Uh, So this was a sort of online performance art project that I started and then abandoned. And I've been meaning to resume it again, but uh, I was tweeting out a sentence a day of persuasion. There's a bot that does like a a, a line, uh, 180 characters or so of Jane Austen's texts every 15 minutes. So it was kind of an impulse to do something similar to that. And uh, I haven't done it recently, Um, (laughs) but yes, that was the original purpose of my Twitter account. And then I sort of got sucked in to becoming more personal and engaging with people more on a not not just strictly uh, quoting Austin text. Yeah, because you almost can't help it sometimes. If I you're know. reading other people's twi- t- quotes, tweets, then you want to engage. And, I know, uh, and I, I noticed you recently changed your name from first impressions <laughs> to include to include your first name. Um, I did do that. And yeah. I think that was important because I realized when I was going around and liking people's tweets and like trying to interact with them, 
that it might seem kind of advertising or almost uh-huh. spammy. Like, look at uh-huh. me, I'm a podcast, follow me. Uh-huh. And I, and also, it, you know, people don't know who they're interacting with. And so I wanted to seem like a real person. So I did that. And it was kind of modeled on what you did. I was like, uh-huh. you know, Sarah can be, uh, you know, talk about her uh, work and be Sarah. I mean, Rose, <laughs> sorry, already slipped no, up. No, it's quite all right. And uh, yeah, she can be Rose when she wants to be. And so I thought that would be good. And also Maggie is just not on the Twitter. She is full on Facebook person. Mm. Um, And so it's like, now we have our different channels. If you want to know what's up with Maggie, follow the Facebook. Uh I do the email and the Twitter. So it's like, oh, okay. I'll I'll have to, uh, for first impressions, there's a face, the Facebook. I I, I haven't checked that out yet. That's okay. And you know, it's not very active and especially not very active right now or mm-hmm. when busy things are going on in our lives. So you, you wouldn't expect something very erudite on there. It's more like we're sharing a meme that we saw, but people, but it's a fun space because people get on and, and you start to know their names and they're, mm-hmm. they're your mm-hmm. listeners who will always be there. And ha- well, I mean, when Maggie got married, when she got engaged, when she had her baby, everybody got to come on and, and congratulate her and mm-hmm. we just got to share in that. So it's our little community of people who know. And I, I will tell you something else about that community. And I tweeted about this the other night and then immediately deleted it because mm. I just lost my nerve. But the people who've been listening to the podcast all along have heard about the, one of the reasons I founded the podcast is about my own mental health struggles, right? Mm-hmm. So it's about Austin and mental health. So there are people who actually know, they're, they're the people in my life who actually can know about my mental health diagnoses, whereas I can't share that out at work. Close friends uh-huh. and family, many of them don't know, and some of them do not want to talk about it in a way that mm. can feel very invalidating, mm-hmm. or they want to tell me that I'm not sick because they want to believe that because it's mm-hmm. inconvenient for them mm-hmm. to have to mm-hmm. deal with me maybe not being well, you know, they or not inconvenient, but it's upsetting, right? Yeah. Depending on who the person is, right? And so if I can come on and have this community that I've shared all this with, We've established a connection that is like a friendship and they are supportive. And, you know, if I can say, you know, I'm hypomanic this month, um, I would, the only place I feel comfortable saying that is on my Twitter, on my mm-hmm. Jane Austen Twitter. Yeah. You know, I've, I've taken that community, I've co-opted it and I've made it my mental health. <laughs> All these people are my therapists now, or at least, at least cheering for me. And sometimes you really need to have people cheering for you. And yeah. That's what, and that's, but that's what the Austin community does you know, for all of us, you know, people cheer you on. And I'm sure that you've experienced the same thing. I have. Yeah. Um, you know, you were saying before we started recording that there are, there are sort of perils and down downsides to the way social media rules our <laughs> lives to some degrees na- degree nowadays, or, uh, you know, the way people communicate on, on the internet isn't, isn't, it's not always an unqualified good, but I, I really do think it is, a good and especially in the last year during the pandemic i i have felt i, I felt like you know it's the the sort of online friends that i have <laughs> in the community it's a big part of my identity and especially as the the circle of people that i'm seeing in person has been so so much more narrow than usual it it's not just about there's there's something about group energy that can be really lovely yeah. You know, that it, it's not, it's not just, it's not only about one-on-one friendships, although those are very good too. Yeah. Um, but the sense of having a, a community of people, a multiplicity of people that, as you said, are cheering you on and think the same memes are funny <laughs> and are interested in chiming in and really obscure discussions about nuances of the social etiquette in Austin's world. Like there's a lot to be said for it. Yeah. And if someone makes a good joke, we're all laughing together. You're in a big room of people. You just said something funny at a party. Mm -hmm. What's more validating Mm -hmm. than that? Mm -hmm. And I have to say, Rose, you are like my number one cheerleader when I think something is funny and I post it. You are so good. Oh, well, I think, I think your memes are on point. I'm, I'm, I'm always very impressed with your work. I I don't think you like it. You respond with an emoji, like a laughing emoji. And that makes me like, yes, I did really well. (laughs) 
so I appreciate you. Yeah, yeah. You did a whole Mansfield Park series. Oh God, a, a while ago. they were they were so excellent. <laughs> that was like that was before Christmas, I believe, and yeah. it was just like I had a riff, and and some people we do. I do have a Twitter follower, Kate who um, liked one of my tweets and, and meme. And so she was like, I didn't really get the Mansfield Park ones, but this one is funny. And I was <laughs> like, Kate, somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to make trash Mansfield Park memes off the cuff. And <laughs> I'm proud of what I've done. <laughs> my contribution to the Austin. <laughs> to the discourse. <laughs> to the discourse TM, right? Um, yeah. yeah. Well, some of those suckers were really funny. And then I did one series that almost got no love at all, which was mm. tweets or memes as though I was Mr. Woodhouse. And it was that mm. meme that was like hard to swallow pills. You know, it's just a cartoon of pills mm-hmm. on a hand. And I wrote, sometimes it snows as the hard to swallow <laughs> <pill>. <laughs> I was like, this stuff is gold. It's, it's, it's niche. It's niche. But it, uh, if you get it, you get it. Exactly. Exactly. So I would love to delve a little deeper into your work adapting persuasion. Do you want to just start off by by sharing why persuasion, why you have such a close relationship with it? Yeah. um, Well, so persuasion was the first Austin novel that I really fell in love with. Um, I, I started reading her pretty young. I think my cousin's came and you know stayed stayed with us and they gave me a copy of Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice when I was 11 or 12 and I sort of struggled through both of those but it was sort of it, it was just at the level of reading that I could comprehend at that <laughs> yes. time so it was I, I liked it but it was I wasn't reading it for pleasure entirely and then a year or two later I picked up Persuasion of my own accord and I, I guess I was ready for it, uh, for Austin at that time. And it really imprinted on me. I've always felt very identified with Anne Elliot, which seems like sort of a pretentious thing to say, because I think she's so cool. And it's not like, I don't, you know, I don't share life circumstances with her, but, um, you know, she's, she's just one heroine that really does it for me. Is it her the sort of introspection, her ability to see it all and like that elegance of mind? As, yeah, as it, it is. You know, one thing I, that I find really interesting about the way she's portrayed is she's both very comfortable with herself and also very kind and tolerant in her attitude toward other people. You know the way that she thinks about the Miss Musgroves that she's she's not really jealous of them. Um, I mean, she's you know she's sad that Captain Wentworth is flirting with them, or she's she wishes she had a sister that she was as close to as they are to each other. But she has a kindly attitude to them that is, I think, kind of lovely and admirable. And the the fact that she she doesn't get a lot of external validation from her social world. Yeah. And yet she really, on the whole, I think, has a strong sense of self and self-worth. I think there are times when, you know, she's hard on herself or she's sort of trying to control her emotional reactions in a way that is not, not nice, maybe not, not, not kind to herself, but not um, healthy, really, but not healthy. That's our yeah. modern perspective, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, um, and I, I mean, I think it's there in the text. Too. <laughs> yeah, that's um, very true. But I, I think that that at the core of it, she's, she's comfortable with who she is, even without having, for most of the story, anybody that she can open her heart to unreservedly. I, and I, I, that's really, that's really a kind of strength and strength and gentleness as, 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 as the, 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 the phrase goes. And that's, who, that's how you saw yourself or you wanted to be, or you related. I suppose really it's well how that. I wanted to be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, yes. And I always found it so striking when you read all the novels, all of the heroines have at least one strong female friendship mm-hmm. and that desolation of Anne being alone in an island mm-hmm. where she doesn't have that, it really hits you hard when you're used to going into Austin's world and used to having a, a female friend and confidant. And when you identify the, with the heroine, you're like, at least we got that going for us. Mm-hmm. You know, we got a support mm-hm. system here. We, mm-hmm. When you're alone with Anne reading Persuasion, you do not have the support system. 
mm-hmm. as a reader. <laughs> you're, you're Interesting. Like, yeah. You're like well, going along with her. I suppose. Would Would you say that's the same as Fanny Price, though? Oh, you're absolutely I, I suppose, right. Um, it's interesting. Both of them, both of them are really into poetry. They they quote poetry yes. in their head with their board. That's so true. <laughs> That's so true. And and with Fanny Price, she almost has that support in Edmund mm-hmm. in a way, although that's unhealthy in and of itself too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And William, right? She doesn't have the female. She does friend. have William. She does have yeah. William. Yeah. And yeah. he, but he's just not around. And right. And with yeah. with and doesn't Anne, have a William. She, she doesn't. When when Mrs. Smith is in the story mm-hmm. you don't quite feel that you get that female friendship and I uh, I think it's purposeful right because she mm-hmm. does she does almost let Anne step off that cliff mm-hmm. of getting mm-hmm. engaged yeah know. yeah what do you make of Mrs. Smith as a reader <laughs> I, I, I I you know the um Apparently, I, there's a letter from after Austin had finished her draft of Persuasion where she says to Fanny Knight something like, I have a something ready for publication. And many scholars, including Juliet Wells, whom I admire very much, um, have said, you know, this means she was done with Persuasion. Um, but it's it seems to me that it's it's hard to read Persuasion after reading Emma, which is so fully fleshed out all the way through, and think that she wouldn't have made some tweaks to volume two if she'd had more time I mean it's so interesting to read that canceled chapters mm-hmm. uh you know and realize mm-hmm. that she had to workshop it with Cassandra mm-hmm. and it does something's mm-hmm. not quite there and mm-hmm. then she comes up with this letter you know she comes out with the you know one of the most beloved and romantic moments in English, yeah. <laughs> English literature and it's like I love that you were like, hmm, something's not quite perfect. Mm-hmm. I'm going to mm-hmm. put the finishing touches on it. and then Tame it's and still- flat, I think that's what she said, yeah. Oh, really tame and yeah. flat. Oh, yeah. and this Mantua maker, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that mm-hmm. I keep referencing. Mm-hmm. Like, listeners, if you haven't read the canceled chapter chapters of Persuasion, give them a look. And there's a there's a feeling almost of when, when Charles Musgrove comes in and tells his mother when they're staying at the end, in, he tells his mother, Mrs. Musgrove, oh, I, I booked us a, a play, a box at the play uh-huh. for Tuesday night. It almost feels like a setup for an event that does not happen. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it in those terms. Yeah, it's like yeah. weird dialogue that doesn't need to be there. Yeah. And there's not much of that in Austin's work. No, no, it's not. I mean, it is, it's funny, the exchange with Charles and Mary there about, about the... Um, uh, you know, he, he's he's insisting that he'll go to the play without her, and she she doesn't want she wants to go to the <laughs> evening right. party, but she also she also that's wants true. to go to the play. That's but um, no, that's that's interesting. Yeah, that's I wonder if she ever envisioned if Austin ever envisioned uh, Anne and Wentworth getting together at the theater. That's, oh, that's kind of an <laughs> yes, because they're she's acting just like Fanny is acting, right? Like they're mm-hmm. both acting a part or whatever. Yeah, mm-hmm. I wonder if she envisioned that because that tie into the theater would be a really interesting twist. Uh, I will admit, as the first time when I read it for the first time, I, I didn't know I had never seen an adaptation, I didn't know what was going to happen, and I definitely felt oh, there's going to be some kind of mix-up or misunderstanding and it's all going to mm-hmm. get resolved at the play. And then, then like almost immediately the letter comes out, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken, right? Like Wentworth is like, you know, uh, Anne is, is Harville are like standing around having this conversation, right? I, as far as the female friendships and the isolation, I, I understand what you're saying, like identifying with that. I find it a hard read because, mm. but you're absolutely right. One thing I'll say is she does not blame herself for saying no. She thinks back to it and she says, in the situation I was in, with the information I had, I was being dutiful. I was respecting Lady Russell's opinion. I, you know, there was a very good reason for me not to accept mm-hmm. him. She doesn't like berate herself for not doing it. She doesn't. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because Austin does really seem to equivocate in this novel about about whether or not it's okay for children to marry people their parents don't approve of. Like yeah, she, she's yeah, she's yeah. she's kind of threading the needle trying to not make a statement about that. It seems, <laughs> it seems to me about that deeply controversial political issue. But yeah, I love that at the end, you know, Anne says I I felt that I had to listen to Lady Russell, and in a way, it's sort of. It's sort of as if she's 
giving herself less agency when she thinks back to yes. um, 19-year-old self. But also, she's saying, Frederick, I'm, I disagree with you about this whole <laughs> scenario. Like, I'm not going to submit to your idea of what my duty was. I'm going to hold my own with respect to this. And, you know, I'm not going to come into this marriage being like, I was wrong. My and bad. I'm so sorry. And, I, <laughs> you know, I so appreciate you're still wanting me, even though I'm 27 and <laughs> very, very and old. <laughs> I think in that final conversation, yeah. he admits, right, that he comes to respect her point of view. And, mm -hmm. and they agree to disagree. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in a really way that's really interesting, I think, as, as a couple, right? They, yeah. they, they are able to, they, he's sort of able to, she sets this boundary and he respects it. The metaphor of Louisa jumping and him mm -hmm. not being able to catch her. Mm -hmm. uh, I think is so powerful because what he was asking Anne to do was jump without a net, possibly yeah. change her life, lose life, lose her status, become a penniless war widow. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. There were so many perils in yeah. what he was oh, asking I, her I like to that. do. Yeah, I haven't really, I, I haven't really heard heard people discuss it in that way as a parallel to what what he was asking Anne to do. I love that. Actually, in my in my play version, I, I gave Lady Russell a line of dialogue. There's sort of a flashback to 1806 um, when they're discussing the engagement and Lady Russell says, uh, among other things, uh, look before you leap, <laughs> which, I, <laughs> I, which I, I considered as sort of a, a bad pun and no one's commented on it. <laughs> yes. Um, so I really, time. I really appreciate your drawing that out. <laughs> I love that so much. Like before you leave, yes, this is exactly what she was doing. And mm -hmm. the unreasonableness of him to think, you know, in the beginning, it's just like, he was lucky. He'd always been lucky. Mm -hmm. And that's what he's basing this whole thing on. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, this is not how the world works. And to be so ungenerous as to not, forgive her for so long I've never forgiven him I never can to totally get on board with him as a character because mm. when you love someone right the ideal of what I would think of is some I, I want someone to love me enough to forgive me earlier than seven years you know what I mean for something I did that hurt them you know like you know yeah well it's it's sort of peculiar that they never worked out how to like have a long-term engagement or, <laughs> yeah, or some yeah. kind of conditional understanding yeah, yeah, yeah. as yeah. the term of the day went it it really seems it seems that it, it's interesting austin sort of elides that she doesn't that whole backstory is given in a few paragraphs of narration we don't get a lot of detail we don't get a flashback in the in the novel um and it really, it really seems like there was some kind of miscommunication. It really does. Perhaps, like, like Anne is saying, I, I, I can't get, I can't get married unless we have some savings. You know, there's no birth control in this world. There's no social security, <laughs> right. Right? right? I don't want to end up like Fanny Price's mother. Right. So let's, right. let's hold off. And he took that as her rejecting him as a person and, and thinking that he wasn't good enough for her. And we learned that um, about him. We learn he's so hot headed. Mm -hmm. right as a person mm -hmm. that I imagine if she had said well let's just cautiously get engaged he would still be just as pissed off mm -hmm. you know he's, he still has this value and this idea of what his future is going to hold and well yeah yeah well she did presumably break the engagement I mean that's one thing you you asked me in your in your show notes about uh, adaptations and one thing that I find perplexing about both movie versions of persuasion is that they refer to it as she refused his proposal, but actually she said yes. And then yeah. took it back, which is much more hurtful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it seems that if, if lady Russell had maybe been a bit more sympathetic or if Anne had had more support from her family, she could have, I don't know, they could have, they could have done something that was kind of in between. It, this black you and know, white. I, I almost wish lady Russell could have sat him down mm -hmm. and as a person who loves Anne, paint a picture for him because if it's coming directly from Anne, all he's hearing is no 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 it's not good you're not good mm -hmm. enough right and if it's coming from someone who's practically saying do you understand what you're really asking her to do and the, mm -hmm. the consequences of this maybe he would have listened but but we're you know we're supposed to love him 
like in the book, it says Anne could love a person who sometimes did a hasty or imprudent thing or whatever, because mm-hmm. it shows your heart. Yes, he has a lot of heart, but that bit him. You know. Yeah, it did. It bit well, them both. We have to remember too that Lady Russell doesn't like him as a person. That's true. It, it seems by the end of the novel the narrator tells us that she will grow to like him <laughs> yeah, right. throughout the whole 1806 to 1815 period. She has been thinking of him as, uh, you know, some kind of, um, uh, some kind of uh, con man, essentially. Right? Yeah, she, right, the, right. The, the narrator says that she, she, uh, she, he, he was, he was witty. He was headstrong. Lady Russell uh, distrusted wit and of any ha, uh, had of anything approaching imprudence a horror. Yes, <laughs> right? she she sees him. She she pegs him as an untrustworthy guy, early on, in a way that is I think maybe even beyond what is a fair assessment. Uh, yeah, I I would agree with that. And on the other hand, I would say as a mother figure to Anne, can you really mm-hmm. blame her? No, uh, right, exactly. Yeah. And and it's a little bit Mrs. Bennett, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like we need to get you a good match because that's the way of the world, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. And then then she's like, oh, Charles Musgrove would have worked out great, you know. It's yeah. just the emphasis on love was not there, and that's always Austin's. That's the core of what Austin's trying to communicate to others in her world. I always feel as if she's saying, you're asking me to find the impossible dream of a man who I love, who also has money. And that is just not going to happen. That's like Mm -hmm. not what happens in 99% of cases. You're saying I can't marry a man I love, but I shouldn't morally marry a man for his money. Mm -hmm. And I don't have any opportunities, you know, like... I forget why I even started talking about this, but it, anyway, it's at this, the core of all these stories is love or money, love or money, love or money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is just no different than because that. Because marriage is the only uh, respectable provision for well-educated women of <laughs> yeah. small fortune, right? Yeah, as, we, yeah. as, we, as we get very explicitly in Pride and Prejudice, yeah, the, yeah. Um, right, the, the economic matters are intimately tied to marriage for women in this class. And yet the culture was over the course of the 18th century, and especially in the period that Austin's work was coming out, shifting towards a more romantic view and a more of more of a prioritization of sensibility and you know companionate marriage and all that, which would become true love by the Victorian era. And so, figuring out how to how to walk that balance is it seems to be something that really interested Austin throughout her sure. career as a writer, and also you know in what we know of her personal life. Actually, that brings me, if you don't mind, no, um, please. <laughs> that brings me to um, my other play that I, I wanted to mention. Um, I have a one act called Many Down, which is about Jane and Cassandra Austen and the night of the Harris Bigweather proposal. And we're going to be recording it in the studio in a couple of weeks and presenting it as a radio play for the Jane Austen Summer Program. Um, the, the University of North Carolina program is part of their entertainment this year. It's so cool. It's so yeah, excited you. for you. I, that is so awesome and a great thank opportunity. You. It's, it's been really fun. I've been working with um, my scene partner, Laura Rocklin, for the first time we workshopped it was January 2019. And we've had, so after over the last couple of years, we've gotten the opportunity to to do a couple of different readings and, you know, develop the project. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, so, I'm excited. Can you share like the inspiration for that? What was your light bulb where you're like I'm gonna write about this night oh yeah so well I mean it's just so um as your listeners may know Jane Austen made this fatal decision (laughs) uh just like many of her characters one night in December 1802 um although her you know her story ended up differently than the many of the fictional versions in that she never married and wrote deathless novels instead um (laughs) but she she accepted a proposal from a wealthy family friend. And then the next morning she said, change my mind, sorry. <laughs> Never <laughs> can't mind. Go through with it. Yeah, yeah, can't go through with that. She had her very um, own, like uh, right, like you were saying, choice between love and money. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, love and money, and also and also more, you know, more more complicated factors too. Like uh, Harris Bigweather was, he had three three of his, he had several older sisters. Three of them were close friends of Jane and Cassandra, the three that were closest in age to them. You know, he was in their home county. They would have been near the place where they grew up. They would have had a settled home. You know, it, it was not merely commercial, but also a sort of idea of 
I can picture her thinking that bringing her family together with this family would be good for a whole community of people and provide, you know, emotional and financial stability to both families. Yeah, but she she decided to take a chance and and couldn't and, and say no, that. and also risk uh, ruining her relationship with this family that she's been in her life for a really long time. Although, I think that she and Cassandra did stay friendly with the um, yeah big sisters. I think they yeah. did. I think there's some yeah. reference in her letter, some oblique reference where it's like wanting to make sure that they don't offend. I mean, I, I mm-hmm. think so. I, honestly, I think about that night a lot more often than we talk about that night in the Austin community. Mm. And I, I don't know really why that is, or maybe I've just lost the plot and I don't see people talking about that or I've mm-hmm. missed presentations about what happened, but it grieves me to the soul to think that she faced the exact same dilemma as an Austin heroine mm-hmm. and they, and had to make this heart-wrenching decision and I just can't imagine, you know, I can't imagine, I guess this is the problem, imagining the conversation in her head and the conversation that she would want to have with Cassandra and him, just imagining him, like, what was mm-hmm. he like, you know? And, and so you've done all that. You've imagined all of these things. And I would be absolutely fascinated uh, to yeah. see the production. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'll, I'll let you know. Um, so our, our radio play version uh, will be presented at this conference in June. And uh, and then I think it'll be available elsewhere after that. So I'll, I'll let you know when the time comes. And um, um, which conference is it just for the... Uh, that is the, the Jane Austen Summer Program at the University of North Carolina. It's a four-day annual symposium. It's usually, usually they rotate through one of Austen's novels. It's the theme for the year. This summer, it is online because of the pandemic, A, and and instead of focusing on one of the novels, the theme is Jane Austen's world. So it's all about life and times. Uh, we're discussing, we'll be discussing Claire Tomlin's biography of Austen and the letters and, you know, different fictionalized interpretations, such as my own, of, of her of her life and personality and sounds really interesting. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I've, I've attended that conference twice before. And it was really fun. It's sort of, it's a little bit similar to the Jasna AGM, but it is much smaller. It's, I think they, when it's in person anyway, I think they capped it at like 150 people and they have small group discussions after every lecture. So you really get to know people. It's, it's lovely. It's lovely. It's, it's not, it's not the same as the AGM. It's its own thing. Um, and they're both fun. <laughs> It sounds amazing. Yeah. Kevin, Kevin, my husband, Kevin, when he, he came across it and he, he didn't realize it was online and actually mm. I didn't either. So he is, his parents live in North Carolina. So he was pushing me. We got to go. We got to go. We got to go. And it kind of oh. shut him down. Um, so maybe yeah. I can, maybe I can still attend since it's Yeah. Th- so this year is online. And then I assume they'll be going back to in person for 2022. 2022. And is, uh, is the age yeah, Jasna AGM, is that also going to be online this year? That I believe they have not announced it yet. Okay. I wouldn't be surprised if it was online. The Chicago region is planning it, but I think they're still sort of holding up hope that they might be able to do it in person. It would be yeah. in the fall. Yeah, yeah. Maggie and I had a dream that we were gonna do it and because I'm so my my other my other deal is that I'm a you know, I'm sort of a climate worrier mm-hmm. and I had taken a vow not to fly and in, in like, you know, and so I was going to have to ride this train, the California Zephyr across mm-hmm. the United States mm. to try to make it work. And so um, I don't know, I guess maybe I've paid for like the sins of the past by not flying at all in 2020. So I get an extra <laughs> free carbon credit. We all, <laughs> that's when you start equivocating like that. Yeah. You just give yourself a pass to do all kinds of things. And um, anyway, I don't know why I started talking. Yeah, about well, um, so after uh, after this coming year, this it's Chicago. And then I believe the next one is Victoria, British Columbia, which oh, is a little, awesome. bit, a little yeah. bit nearer to you. Um, yeah. And then Colorado, I don't remember what city. Yay. Um, so yeah. <laughs> West Coast, yay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they try, it's 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 done annually on the basis of proposals submitted by the local regions, but I, I think they seem to try to mix it up. Yeah. Um, oh, and provide so different, you know. So everyone hubs. has a chance. And yeah. I, I would love to see more virtual options stick around going forward for the people who don't have the means or, you know, or capability to travel. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And I, you know, I was thinking, 
I'm sure that the process of setting up live streaming for something like that would be complicated, but it, it I don't think it would diminish demand for the in-person no. attendance, no. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things about the Jasna AGM is that uh, you have to register within the minute that the tickets yeah. uh, go on sale <laughs> every year. Yeah. There's, you know, they, they it, depending on, you know, how much capacity they have in the space that they're using, it's usually like, between five and 800 people can go and there's always a wait list that's at least that long yeah so it would be yeah it would be great to have a virtual option for that reason for accessibility but I also I think that if I had the time and money I would want to go in person anyway yes. like I, I wouldn't it, it wouldn't be a substitute it wouldn't they're very you know, undermine the experience in any yeah. way they're, yeah they're very different experiences for sure yeah so do you mind if we return for a second to your adaptation of persuasion? Yeah. If you're willing to share how, how the sausage was made, so to speak, what were your darkness of the soul when you were writing this adaptation? How to handle <laughs> X, how, how to write uh-huh. this, how to frame this, you know, how to deal with this character, what to cut? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, so first of all, Persuasion was my first full-length play that I ever wrote, so I started off blithely not knowing what I didn't know, Mm -hmm. and the first draft was about four hours long. (laughs) Um, And actually, it it is pretty much, the current version is pretty much the same structure at about half that length, and I think most of what I have cut has been uh, within the dialogue. I, I, I wanted to use a lot of Austin's dialogue as one does because it's brilliant. But one thing that I have learned is that even, you know, she's a fairly succinct writer, but even succinct as she is, you need fewer words to express something on the stage than you do on the page mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you have so many nonverbal cues. Mm-hmm. Um, so people, everybody, everybody's speaking about half the sentence, half the number of sentences that they were in my first time. <laughs> one thing that I did cut uh, that we were touching on earlier is Mrs. Smith. Sorry for spoilers for anyone who's planning to come see my play when, whenever uh, the theater life resumes. But I, I did. I, I felt that in the so act. So I, I broke. I broke the acts with the same place the volumes break oh. in the novel. So uh, volume one ends with Louise's fall and people dealing with the aftermath of that, and then volume two and goes to Bath. And uh, once we get to Bath, we have Mr. Elliot, we have the Dalrymples, we're getting reacquainted with Sir Walter and Elizabeth and Mrs. Clay, whom we haven't seen since the very beginning. And I felt like it was too much to introduce another character (laughs) and another sort of subplot (laughs) at that point. And then also, I decided that I didn't really... And I guess this this goes back to what I was saying about how I I feel like she's not fully integrated into the narrative in in the novel as it stands because Anne makes her decision that she doesn't want to marry Mr. Elliot before she hears his evil backstory, it's almost not really relevant. Mm-hmm. One thing that Mrs. Smith gives does, which is, which is lovely, she gives Anne the opportunity to stand up to her father, right? A- Anne says, I'm going to go visit my friend, even though you want me to go to this other party with our grand connections. And, mm-hmm. um, but I have a prior engagement. I'm going to stick to that, which is nice sort of reversal of what happened with Frederick mm-hmm. back in 1806. But yeah, I, I, I ultimately decided that we didn't need to know just what a bad guy Mr. Elliot is. I kind of threw it in there in another context that it was sort of implied that he does not have purely disinterested motives in his pursuit of Anne. But, you know, Mr. Elliot is, it's it's one thing that's really interesting about Anne as a character too, is that she's never taken in by Mr. Elliot, right? She she always, she's like, okay, he's more interesting to talk to than many of the people that I see (laughs) around me. (laughs) But I, I, you know, he's not doing anything for me. He's not, he's not Wickham. He's not Willoughby. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, Yes. She has the uh, maturity and insight to feel like something is off yes. and she decides within herself that even even if she never sees Captain Wentworth again she's not really interested in marrying him it seems to me that Mr. Elliot's function in the plot is more as a sort of obstacle on Wentworth's sort of moral journey to getting a, a, a more accurate self-valuation I guess I see I see Wentworth as somebody who is both in the beginning, especially as somebody who's both very arrogant and then also very insecure. So he 
he comes in and he, in in 1814 after the war and he's like okay i finally made it you know my plan worked i'm rich and everybody <laughs> loves me i'll never be rejected again and then he sees yeah. mr elliot and it's like oh oh wait you know i still wasn't born into this i still don't have uh i, I still don't have that class status that um someone who is deeply connected to Anne's family would have but you know then Anne gets to tell him she doesn't care about that <laughs> yeah right? so she gets that wasn't, to show that that wasn't right. her that motivation that's not, that's not what it was the whole time yeah, it, was just, yeah. it was just about the practicality that's such a brilliant it, point yeah I've never thought about that before in his jealousy yeah. of Mr. Elliot I so it, it's like Mr. Elliot is like it represents what I, I this is my interpretation of course it's not um it's not spelled out in the novel, but that Mr. Elliot represents what Wentworth has been striving to be and never can be and never should be because he's, right. he's usually quite a lot nicer than that. Yeah, they both kind of reject that. And Anne, you know, in thinking these could have been my friends, you know, I could be with people of substance that I love, mm -hmm. not in this system where all we value is class mm -hmm. and, and our lives are, are and our conversations, you know, are very, are very dry and don't yeah. have that depth and we don't have these emotional connections. I love that point. I love that, that motivation versus jealousy. I never thought of that before. I always just saw oh, you know, another dog has my toy and now I want my toy back, you know, like. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that's an invalid reading. It certainly does, you know, that's there too. <laughs> that is a <laughs> right? male, like, problem. Jealousy is it? part of what makes him notice her again. Yes, Even, yes, even exactly. from, from the beginning, from the first introduction of Mr. Elliot at Lyme, which I also had to cut, sadly. Oh, no. Um, because uh, in my script, um, Mr. Elliot is double cast with Charles Musgrove, and I thought it would be too confusing. Oh to yeah, have, it would be tough to have Mr. Elliot come on there and then not say anything, but also not be Charles Musgrove. I sort of <laughs> feel like he, he has to be yeah, dialogue yeah, to yeah. establish that he's a different person, and I couldn't figure out how to make that work. Plus, it was getting really long. <laughs> oh no, I under, I I, t I totally get it. I totally get it. I was going to say something else, but now I have to go down the rabbit hole of, was it necessary to double cast just because you were putting too many, there were too many characters and you were afraid that no one had a troop that big kind of thing? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I think I tend to like aesthetically plays that are more economical in terms of mm -hmm. the way they use actors. I, I was in a, a 25 character, 25 actor version of Pride and Prejudice, which actually still had some double casting. I, I, I enjoyed the experience immensely. But I, I think I tend to prefer a more pared down style in theater. Plus, it's a lot more affordable. And, you, you know, <laughs> yes, like right. almost no one writes large cast plays anymore unless they're unless it's a Broadway musical. So I did I, I envisioned it originally for 10 people. And that is what the current draft is as well. I have done a couple of readings with eight people, which required just some minor cuts. But uh, that sort of the 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 size of the roles became more unbalanced some of them got really big and some of them not not so big so i felt like the the 10 person version was my preference i actually just recently had a conversation with the gentleman who's going to produce and direct uh the play as soon as the new york theater opens saying that you know because of the kind of financial uncertainty and the restrictions around um social distancing both in the audience and also in the dressing rooms and things like that and not knowing how that's all going to be we might try to do it with a smaller cast and i said this this director eric tucker is a genius and i have seen him do incredible things with tiny casts and like people shifting character mid-scene and making it completely clear and and funny and entertaining and not not gimmicky so i i said i you know i couldn't figure out how to do it in a way that i liked with less than 10 people but i i bet you can <laughs> i trust you <laughs> So we'll see what happens. I, I don't know what the, I've only done stage readings up to now. It hasn't had a premiere of okay. my script. So. Okay. No, understandable. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I imagine that double casting need pulls together some features of two characters and juxtaposes them in a way you didn't think of. Like all of a sudden this man who plays both Charles Musgrove and Musgrove and, and Walter Elliott is sort of like a blank there where it's men who are not interesting to Anne. Yeah. She's yeah. going through a world where it's the same guy, every face is the same guy. And it's yeah, like, no I like that. It, it can be, yeah, it's, it is interesting to, to sort of play with those ideas that, that either having a sort of similarity in their role or having a contra, a, a big contrast. 
I, you know, I, th- I think that adds to the pleasure of the experience yeah. as a viewer. I would, see, be, I would be so that into that. I, would be I also, I, I, I made the Harvilles a little bit older than they are in the book, and I have them double cast with Sir Walter and Lady Russell. So oh, okay. this, this warm, um, unpretentious family that Anne has this really intimate relationship is also these sort of cold <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Uh, austere people. It uh, gets to highlight the, the range of the actors, right? Mm-hmm. And like, oh, you could see the power of the acting. Mm-hmm. It's the same guy, but it's a totally different person. I would just really enjoy that a- aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. And and the, the, there's also a moment which, I, again, I think is funny. I'm not sure if it reads for other people, but at the at the at the White Hart Inn toward the end, when uh, Charles is looking out the window and seeing Mr. Elliot and Mrs. Clay talking together, I have him say, "Oh, he's a really handsome man." <laughs> That's awesome. Ash, what was I going to say? I was just going to mention, you know, Mr. Knightley getting jealous of Frank Churchill, and mm. that's when he realizes he loves Emma. Yeah. That, those, those push and pull forces must... That's interesting. You know, well, and I think act. of Mr. Knightley as being somebody who's quite emotionally mature, so... Yes. <laughs> if even he has jealousy, even I guess me, it's okay yeah. for Frederick to have jealousy, too. Yeah, yes. I, yeah, when, I, I, when I said he was like a dog with a toy, I was like, I mm-hmm. should probably walk that back. I just meant territorial, right? No, no, I get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is, it is interesting. Um, one thing that I've noticed as I've, you know, closely read the novel to work on this project, Anne somehow gets prettier and more attractive over the course of the novel. And there's no apparent cause for that, except sort of Jane Austen saying, saying the the, the, the sea breeze, right? (laughs) But I I think it, my interpretation of that is that she is less depressed. Um, You know, that she's more available to people after seeing Wentworth again after eight years it's like she was in this sort of stasis Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then seeing him again is very traumatic but it also kind of allows her to be free to entertain the idea of being with someone else which I I don't think she's ever done this whole time right um because she really does start to have some feelings for Captain Benick yes Um, I think that's or at least you know at least a desire to see him again and talk with him about books again the prequel yeah. to a feeling that mm-hmm. makes her remember the feeling, right? Like, mm-hmm. no, I, I know. And Mr. Elliot, right. although she is, you know, she's suspicious of him, she she entertains the idea of marrying him at least. Yeah, yeah, she has that moment. She sees herself as her mother, mm-hmm. right? Lady Kellen Hall, and, mm-hmm. and it was so bewitching. But then the spell was immediately broken because she realized you'd have to be married to Mr. Elliot, which mm-hmm. is a, a real uh, parallel to the Harris Big Wither situation. Yeah, Actually, yeah. That's an exact parallel. Yeah. Man, imagine Austin thinking, I could have all of this, I could secure all of this uh-huh. for my future happiness, but, but. Or Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Collins. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I guess the charm of the parish and the chickens yes. and the cows, uh, <laughs> to, be, to be fair, I guess little Elizabeth was never really chasing that <laughs> lifestyle either. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah, so I, I just, I just, I think hearing this adaptation process is so interesting, and I'm wondering to tie that into other adaptations of persuasion. Now that you've gone through the unique experience, which very few people on the planet have, of having written a script or a, a, a screen, um, not a screenplay, but a play. When you watch other adaptations of persuasion. How do you feel? How do you relate to it? Do you start to judge their decisions or think, question your own, or how does that work? Um, yeah, I guess I do. I, I think, well, I mean, I, 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 I like the script that I've written. I, I, feel, <laughs> I imagine I feel, that you I do. feel pretty, um, <laughs> no, no, I, I feel, you know, I feel like it's, it, it is part of, it is part of a good part of myself. And so I think, I'm probably more inclined to most pe- than most people to sort of quibble with editorial decisions that mm-hmm. other mm-hmm. writers make in adapting the story, which is which is fine. I try to take the Anne Elliot attitude. Yeah, it's okay yeah. For them to be the way they are, it's okay for me to be the way I am. It's not a zero sum game. We need right. all the adaptations um, we can get. Right, right. So you know, I'll be interested to see what the the new movie version that's coming out. Oh, that's right. There's a new one coming too. Yeah. I don't know when they just announced the leads. Right. Yeah, they just announced the casting. Um, it looks great. The cast they chose is really exciting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I do. I, I think of, I prefer the 1995 version of the the filmed versions that currently exist. I do. I think I have some quibbles with the script, but 
I, the cast is lovely and the costumes and cinematography are lovely. You know, they really, they really captured something beautiful about it. The warmth and the hominess and just Charles Musgrove sitting around in his stocking feet, you mm-hmm. know, in front of the fire mm-hmm. is draws you in and makes you feel like you're amongst friends. And yeah. I absolutely love that. Adaptation. Yeah, that's, that's well said. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that is, is peculiar, which I, I, I mentioned, I can't remember if it was before we started recording or not, um, is that both the 95 and 2007 filmed versions refer to it as a marriage proposal that Anne rejected, oh, yeah. which seems to me to be considerably lowering the stakes from what Austin wrote. Yes. And I'm, I, I can't think of really an explanation for that. Because of course, in the novel, Anne accepted the proposal and a short period of exquisite felicity yeah, followed. Yeah. And, you know, well, we don't even know what happened <laughs> during, <laughs> that, during that short period of exquisite felicity. Um, and then she, and then she jilted him, right? Which, which was a kind of, I mean, it was socially acceptable for women to break it off at that time period, but it, it was not, it, it wasn't a, it was a negative, it was a negative reflection on her character by most outside observers, I think, if they knew about it. Right. And certainly more hurtful from his perspective. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I, you know, I think, I, I think that, I think we need to see more persuasion adaptations about that include the broken engagement. That's... Include the broken engagement, you cowards. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suspect it just takes more time to explain and everybody's mm-hmm. streamlining, but I think you make a really important point that they're so close to perfect happiness Mm -hmm. that when she does withdraw it the sting is even more devastating to him Mm -hmm. he can't get past it and and I think that's a really good point for me to mull over because I often forget that as well Mm -hmm. Um, but that they were for a short time engaged and that and that Sir Walter refused to do anything for them pecuniarily pecuniary (laughs) right right which which is interesting too I mean I mean it's it's all sort of it's all sort of vague in the way that Austin narrates it. But yes, he refused to do anything for his daughter. What does that mean? Presumably that he is not going to give her access to her money that's been settled on her while she's still underage. I think uh, my, my understanding of the legal system is that, you know, she's this, the three sisters each have 10,000 pounds from their mother's estate that they will get when they're 21 or before if their parents want to give it to them. So, you know, Anne is 19. He doesn't want to give her her money. And then, of course, by the end of the novel, he doesn't have it to her. So he's, he doesn't have it to give to her. So <laughs> yeah, right. he's actually in debt to Captain Wentworth, um, among yeah. other folks. But yeah, it, it, it's interesting. One thing that is, is sort of lovely with regard to Austin's equivocation about this very fraught political issue of whether children can marry without their parents' consent is that Anne insists that Lady Russell is a mother figure to her, but she's actually not, right? Mm-hmm. And the actual living parent that Anne has does not absolutely forbid the marriage. Yeah, he, yeah, he, yeah. He's cold about it. But so I think it, it seems to me that for Austin's original readers, perhaps Anne's decision would be a more black and white issue if she actually had a parent that put their foot down. But because Lady Russell is merely a parent figure, there's this ambiguity that uh, Austin's playing with. It's interesting. So here's Sir Walter screwing everything up again because he can't put, you know, he can't just cut it off and then Wentworth can come back with the money, right? In that case, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, Wentworth might not have even been as mad. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, okay, you're the boss. (laughs) Right, right. Um, Wow. Instead, he's just rude about it. (laughs) Yeah. There's so much I hadn't thought about. You know, sometimes it just, it really pays to just talk it over with, another person and all of these things come to light and you're like how could I have missed this fascinating point there's always more <laughs> there's always more <laughs> there's always more yeah. hence the podcast right yeah yeah <laughs> another quibble that I have with the 1995 version which I really love is that there's the and again the the, the Charles Hater subplot is so small it's yeah, it's, yeah. again you have you know and you have to condense and so forth the movie's only like two hours and 10 minutes long or something, if I'm remembering correctly. But Anne overhears Henrietta and Louisa walking together outside the window. And there's something like Henrietta doesn't want to marry Charles Hayter anymore. And Louisa's making her, which is not the impression I get from the book. Although that is, I mean, maybe that is a valid reading of, of the book, 
but it seems to me that what the narrator is saying in that section is that Henrietta wants to marry Charles. Henrietta still loves Charles Hayter, and she's feeling embarrassed about how she was temporarily inconstant by flirting with Wentworth. And yeah. Louisa helps her find the courage to stand up to Mary and go after what her heart truly desires, which is a much more kind reading of Louisa mm-hmm. than uh, Louisa is making Henrietta get back with Charles Hayter because she wants to have Captain Wentworth all to herself, <laughs> right? I think one of the things that is kind of lovely and interesting about persuasion is that the the really bad people are not serious antagonists in plot terms, while the people who do provide obstacles in plot terms are fairly lovely. <laughs> um, uh, you could say it, you could see sort of comparing it to Pride and Prejudice structurally, Lady Russell plays a similar role to Lady Catherine. Mm-hmm. And Louisa, you know, plays a similar role to Caroline Bingley as the rival or or Lydia as sort of the inconvenient teenager. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they're both, you know, you you they're both they're both acting rightly according to their lights. They're both they're both doing their best. Yeah. Right? yeah. And uh, and then sort of the the obnoxious characters, so Walter and uh, his his retinue are really they're they're almost comic relief. They're not Right, they're they're sort of part of the furniture and part of yeah. the part of the world that is set up in in this negative way. But they don't. Anne's conflict and Wentworth's conflict is mainly, I think, with Lady Russell and Louisa and mm-hmm. each other. And I, I like thinking about how Austen maybe increasingly, I don't know, humanized her antagonists, or yeah. it really it doesn't seem to be. You know, whether ch- whether children can get married without their parents' consent is not a hot topic or controversial issue for most people that I know. Um, <laughs> but it it really was a moral dilemma in in Austin's world. And I, I think, and as you, as you said, it ties into the sort of larger moral dilemma about how, how much love is enough mm-hmm. to make a marriage valid mm-hmm. and, and how much how much is it appropriate to consider financial security, questions of, you know, integrity and what it yeah. means to be a person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, it's that's not real life. When you have conflict yeah. in real life, it's it's with someone else who doesn't isn't evil. This is mm-hmm. not a Marvel movie. There's no right. big bad, you know. Right. Like, right. and so when you, like, I think that's part of the power of Austin is navigating this in a way that's fair for everybody and mm-hmm. who we support and who we ultimately who goes too far for morality and mm-hmm. needs to be checked mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean mm-hmm. or not get that brass ring yeah, yeah. <laughs> whatever that's one want. of the interesting things in Emma too which I just reread is that we the we really never we never get a final assessment on Frank Churchill he's <laughs> you know he, he's just left as a question mark mm-hmm. um and Mr. Knightley and Emma and Mrs. Weston they all talk it over and they all have different opinions that are mostly tied to their own yeah, <laughs> their own their psychological own issues feeling, you know their um, outcomes yeah right yeah um, how embarrassed they feel about their own behavior <laughs> right 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 um, <laughs> but it's uh i don't think emma she doesn't like have his number at the end the way the way elizabeth you know she she has wickham dead to rights yeah. she knows exactly right. who he is right and lady right. Catherine and all the other unpleasant people in pride and prejudice like it, there's a, there's a kind of clarity and same in sensibility, uh, those two earlier novels. Um, same sensibility really does kind of have uh, the, the person who's inscrutably evil and, you know, in um, Fanny and John's, whose mother is it? It's Fanny's, Fanny's oh, mother. Mrs. Yes. Ferrers. Yes. yes, Mrs. Ferrers, yes, yes. is just a dragon, <laughs> right? Yes, and, yes, she is. And perhaps that, co- I mean, obviously that came at a, a period of Austin's life where she was younger and she needed mm-hmm. a convenient baddie. And, mm-hmm. um, and perhaps as she gets older, her her bad guys are, like you were saying, they're people who are in the way uh, mm-hmm. and social conventions. <laughs> those right, two well, and it's also, it, it's a reflection perhaps of the character, the lead character's greater maturity in persuasion that they're not, right, Anne isn't, Anne isn't disturbed by her father and Elizabeth not approving of the marriage, right? Yeah. She, she has the the wisdom to to get over that that part pretty quickly. Right. It's and Lady she's Russell long stopped caring the about their approbation. You know, mm-hmm. she doesn't have mm-hmm. she she doesn't get it, but she also doesn't sign any work to it because these folks morally, intellectually, 
you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's nothing there. They're just, they're just like blank spaces, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> there, he's a baronet and an handsome man and the Sir Walter who unites both these blessings, the object of his fervent, <laughs> his own fervent admiration. Right, I, right. I was just reading that this morning and I was like, that is the best slam of all time. Look, Kevin, my husband was like, what's the first line of persuasion? And I was like, gosh, darn it. Mm-hmm. I don't, I only got the, the first long one. few letters, right? I only <laughs> yeah. got the first few words of it. And I was like, says something like Sir Walter Kellynch Hall. But then when you read it all through, the slam is at the end with a lot. It's one of these Austin sentences with many, many semicolons. Mm-hmm. So you're getting mm-hmm. there, getting there, getting there, getting there. Oh, <laughs> that's really <laughs> funny. But mm-hmm. it's not one you can just toss off your cuff, right? Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even the um, even the Emma, the first line in Emma, which is so good. Uh, kind of goes on kind of a long time before uh, that's right that's right and then the um, yeah yeah it is and then the the turn comes at the end yes it comes that must be a a a rhetorical term for that uh but I don't know what it is I'm sure there's some Latin term for like the stinger (laughs) the kicker right um, (laughs) right and uh but you know Emma Woodhouse handsome clever and rich those are immortal words right Mm -hmm. like even at the Mm -hmm. beginning immortality so that one, and the, and then you turn to sense and sensibility. She didn't really, you weren't really, and um, you know, Mansfield Park. It comes like halfway down the first page, but there are certainly not so many rich men in the mm-hmm. world that there are pretty women to deserve mm-hmm. them. And she mm-hmm. just like moved that up to the top. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that would be the other immortal opening line. Not to criticize. I mean, she the way it is is perfect, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, that's that that one gets buried, and you just yeah. start getting confused about the financials details and then then you're there and then you're like oh I get it but any but yeah anyway not to talk about that forever and then sense of sensibility you know family of dashwoods long been settled in Sussex uh-huh. Ooh, I'm hooked <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right yeah you hear about three generations before yeah, yeah 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 but that was so typical of her time that that probably mm-hmm. didn't strike her as you know anything that was anything she needed to worry about or fix right um, right right and i i do think sense and sensibility is the most conventional of the novels yeah, stylistically yes, right absolutely. it is it is it is the one that seems to be and of course it's the one she pu- she ended up choosing to publish first i guess she'd made other attempts but it it, it it's like she was writing to the marketplace a little yes, bit in that yes, one maybe yes yes yeah 100 percent yeah. Um, you know, she she got it out of her system, writing Northanger Abbey, skewering all this. Mm-hmm. And then she's like, I'm going to make, you know, let me do the, the conventional one and try to get successful. I love that point. I, I completely mm-hmm. agree with you in it the dialogue. Me, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it has some, some, you know, I love Mrs. Jennings and, and Fanny Dashwood. And there are some very uniquely, uniquely Austin idiosyncratic elements to it. But to me, it seems like Eleanor is almost to me a kind of paragon 18th century heroine um and and i think she escapes that because we have the free and direct discourse and we do Mm -hmm. see Mm -hmm. a little bit more of the workings of her mind than we would Mm -hmm. in a a more typical novel of that period yeah it's sort of the one that gets that gets the closest to being just regular i was was (laughs) told this story on the podcast before but i actually picked it as a book club book in a Mm -hmm. group with which was not an austin book club at all and I was like, oh, it's such a great book. You guys are going to love it. And then I started reading it. It had been a little while. And I thought, uh-oh, mm. because it does. Of all of them, I think it is the hardest to get into if you're not comfortable with the language. It is mm. a more mm-hmm. stereotypical um, early 19th century novel language-wise. Mm-hmm. Wi- language mm-hmm. And it, mm-hmm. it was a struggle for some people. And I was like, whoops, mm-hmm. sorry. Interesting, interesting. Um, yeah, but it's, it's interesting that she, you know, she, apparently she was working on that in Pride and Prejudice at the same time mm-hmm. in the same, this period in her early 20s and also the draft of North and Garabi, you know, if we can trust Cassandra's recollection. It, it, it's funny, it, it, um, you know, the note that Cassandra wrote much later suggests that North and Garabi was drafted the latest of the three, which seems, I'm, I'm a sort of, I also find that a little bit difficult to believe. Yeah. Right? It feels like such youthful work and it has so much more of the tone of the juvenilia. But I don't know, who knows? It, it's, no. it so does have the tone, tone of the juvenilia. You could just see in the bones of it when you're reading it, you know, this hilarity, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. every sentence being hysterical mm-hmm. and then written perhaps over top of it. If, you, if we are to believe Collins Hemingway's hypothesis that it was juvenilia first and then revamped into the adult novel, and some mm. of those passages that mm. are so hectically comic were from an earlier period. It's, if you have yeah. no idea what I'm talking about for those listening, listening, um, it was a session I attended at Jasna 
So if you go back and listen to the jazz in a recap, you can like hear more about that. But that was like, yeah, it blew my mind. And then he he was he was up in front of God and everybody, and he was like, it doesn't work for me. And then we were like, all right. okay all right slow down you know you could just that part you may have just considered keeping to yourself (laughs) i don't need to know whether you think northern abbey works or not yeah (laughs) you know whatever i like it i i I do think pride and prejudice is probably the most accessible i I, I usually tell people to start with that yeah i think so too Yeah. yeah And it's, I mean, and it's great too. Obviously, yeah, and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's a classic for a reason. Cool. Well, I think that this has been fan- a fantastic conversation. Rose, it was so amazing to have you on, to talk through all this stuff with you, to have the conversations that we're having on Twitter, but even better because we can riff and we can just see each other and we can have this sort of flow and... I am just beyond thankful that you're willing to do this. I know it's kind of, you took a leap on someone you only know, knew oh. from 280 characters. You know it's what I mean? Pleasure. Yeah. Uh, it was so much fun. Um, alrighty. Well, thank you so much again for coming. This was so awesome. And I really, really appreciate it. And I know Maggie appreciates it too. And she sends her apologies. She wasn't able to be here. Oh, uh, it, 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 uh, I, yeah, I would love to chat with her sometime too, um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's been great. I, I really enjoyed um, getting to meet you <laughs> and have a conversation. Yeah. And so yeah. we will, we do, well, I will do our normal sign off at the end of our podcast, which is we have delighted you all long enough. <laughs>